Now, we're doing um, a series on Luke, but actually I haven't got a passage from Luke this morning. I've been given one of the, the what they call the free choices in the preaching, um, in the preaching rotor. And, um, and I've been talking to God about, you know, what I should, I should bring this morning. And, um, you know, sometimes we read the Bible and, you know, we kind of, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have my favorite uh, passages. I have my favorite books that I like to read. So, you know, I'll often go back to Ephesians or Hebrews or if I'm in the Old Testament, it might be Isaiah. But then there are some of those books that you really don't get to very often, aren't there? And, um, and that happened to me the other day when, um, when I actually came across a verse in, uh, for me, what was rather an unexpected place. It was actually a verse in 2 Chronicles um, 27. Now, it is, I must confess, unusual for me to be reading Chronicles. Chronicles is the, um, the English title for it. In Greek, the title for it, and I apologize to any of the Greek scholars for my pronunciation here, but it's Paralipomenon. And Paralipomenon means things left on one side. And I'm afraid with me, Chronicles often gets left on one side. (laughs) But what happened was I'd been in the staff meeting one Tuesday morning, and we, we worshipped together and we prayed together in the staff meeting. And God gave me a word for, of one of the other people there. And the word that he gave me was about this person being steadfast and God seeing him as steadfast and walking steadfastly. And I said to him, when, you know, when I get home, I'll email you the word. Because sometimes you know, people say things over, but it's hard always to remember exactly what's been said. So when I got home, I got my computer and I was just about to, to do it. And I really felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to do a word search in the Bible on steadfast and steadfastly. And I, I was thinking, oh, there's going to be a lot of stuff come up in the Psalms, you know, because I know the psalmist talks all the time about being steadfast in my heart and so on. But actually, the one that came up was this rather surprising verse in 2 Chronicles 27. And it was just verse 6. And it's in a, in a short chapter um, which tells us something about the life of Jotham, who was one of the kings of Judah. And it just said this, Jotham grew powerful because he walked steadfastly with the Lord. And you know what? That really jumped out at me. Jotham grew powerful because he walked steadfastly with the Lord. See, I don't really associate the word steadfast with being powerful. Some translations say grew in strength or was mighty. Because, you know, it's not a very exciting sounding word, is it really? And um, I probably would say, yeah, it's about being faithful and, you know, just uh, keeping going and not giving up. But I wouldn't have associated it with a sense of power and strength and mightiness. But here it is. Jotham became powerful because he walked steadfastly with the Lord. So what do we know about Jotham? Well, not an awful lot, to be honest. Um, We know that he was the son of Uzziah. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 16 years. And it tells us in this passage that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. We find out that he was a builder and a battler. He built cities and fortifications throughout the forests and mountains of Judah. And he restored the upper gate to the temple. He fought with the king of the Ammonites and his armies and he defeated them. And then, after 16 years on the throne, he died. And he was buried in the city of David, which is considered to be ancient Jerusalem. And his son Ahaz succeeded him. So that's not a lot. There's a little bit more elsewhere, but not very much. 
We know he was very different to his dad and his son because his dad, Isaiah, he started well. It says that he did right in the eyes of the Lord. But as he became powerful through being steadfast in his walk, he started to become proud. Isaiah became proud. And one day he decided that he was important enough to walk into the temple and burn incense in front of the altar. And that was a job that only the consecrated priests could do. And so when he did that, he became a leper. And he spent the last years of his life excluded from everyone as a leper. And actually, um, Jotham was sort of prince regent in that time. So he was actually minding the kingdom before he became king. And then Jotham's son Ahaz, who succeeded him, well, he started badly, he went on badly, and he ended badly, basically. So he turned away from God, he worshipped Baal, he was defeated in battle, he shut up the temple, because he got really fed up with it all. Um, He built temples to other, uh, built altars to other gods on every street corner. And when he died, although he was buried um, in uh, the city of David, he wasn't buried in the tombs of the kings. And um, Ahaz gets a, a very bad reputation in the Bible. But you see, Jotham was different because he started well, he continued well, and he finished well. All his life, he walked steadfastly. Um, uh, before God and in fact if you if you took the words of that particular line and you sort of try to give, get a literal translation which isn't always very easy but it literally means that he grew in strength because of the fact that he firmly established and ordered out the walking of his life before the face of God that's a bit complicated and I basically it's this he kept his eyes on God in everything that he did Jotham would have agreed with the psalmist in Psalm 16, where he says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. See, that's the secret, isn't it? To being strengthened and to being powerful in life. It's keeping our eyes on God in everything that we do. That's it. That's the end of my preach. You've got the answer now. (laughs) Trouble is, it's really not that easy, is it? And um, we'll come back to that or I'll come back to that later. There are lots of examples in the Bible of men and women who walk steadfastly. But in the end, the greatest example um, to us, the the, the one for us to follow is Jesus himself. Jesus was, in everything, our perfect example. And, you know, he's exactly the same when we look at how we walk steadfastly. So... um, I said we were looking at Luke, and um, I, I read through Luke. I just wanted to kind of get an idea of you know, how Jesus walked steadfastly. And as you read through Luke, what you see is it's really mostly about a journey. Do you know that nearly half of Luke's gospel is concerned with the last journey that Jesus took to Jerusalem before his death on the cross? In Luke 9, verse 51, it says this, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So some translations say he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew why he was going. He knew that he was going to Jerusalem to die. He knew that it wasn't going to be an easy thing to do. And Still, he set his face steadfastly. Like Jotham, his eyes were firmly fixed on the Father and on the Father's plan to reconcile everything to himself. Jesus had an ultimate purpose in view. And 
we need to have purpose in our life in order to be able to walk steadfastly with him. When he was 12 years old, right from the very beginning, when, when he was 12 years old, Mary and Joseph thought they'd lost him, didn't they? Do you remember? They set off for home and discovered that Jesus wasn't with them. And so it took them about four days, I think, in total before they actually found him in the temple. And they're like, why have you, you know, why have you done this? I mean, you can imagine, can't you? Your 12-year-old son disappears. You're searching for him for about four days. You finally find him in the temple and he seems completely under, unconcerned about it. It reminds me of when we go away on the church holiday. You know, the teenagers disappear for the entire three days, don't they? <laughs> I'm like, where were you? How did you get fed? Oh, well, I just went to Kate and Dave's caravan, I think, mostly. <laughs> and they fed me. Okay, <laughs> fine. But yeah, he, he says this to them. He says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? You see, Jesus knew the plan right from the very beginning. He had that purpose in his life. When Jesus was baptized by John in the River Jordan, John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then later, speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus said this. He said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus didn't deviate from the plan. He didn't take... um, an easy, easier way. He didn't take a detour when things got difficult. And, you know, sometimes, you know, we think, well, he was a son of God, wasn't he? So, you know, I know he had to go through the cross and that was really difficult. And, but he knew what was on the other side. He'd been there before. It was easy for him. He could have turned stones into bread if he was hungry. He could... I've walked on the water rather than waiting for a boat to take him across the other side. But, you know, Jesus didn't do those things. He didn't turn stones into bread when he was hungry. And yes, he did walk on the water once, but that was really for the benefit of his disciples. It wasn't just so he could get to the other side. When he calmed the storm, it was for the sake of the disciples. And on that long journey to Jerusalem, all the way along, he was preaching and teaching and healing people and bringing hope and bringing life. You see, Jesus could have done all those things. He didn't need to be hungry. He didn't need to get wet if it rained. He was the son of God. He could have done anything. But the point was, he didn't. He, When he did those miracles, he did them for others, not for himself. He didn't turn water into wine for himself. He did it for those at the wedding at Cana. He didn't turn stones into bread for himself, but he did take a few loaves and some fish and multiply that so that the multitudes could be fed. Jesus knew what it was like to be homeless. And he said, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He knew what it was like to be misjudged, persecuted and deserted. He lived steadfastly in all circumstances and he lived steadfastly as a man. He chose to live as a man because that's how we have to live. We have to live as men and women and we're subject to some of the things that happen in the world. God understands our humanity. He knows that we struggle and he doesn't condemn us. So Jesus I wonder, actually, I wondered, I was thinking about this. Do you think Jesus ever got sick? See, 
we pray um, for healing and we see God here. We've seen some amazing things happen. And I guess if I had sort of just stopped to think about it, I think, well, I guess Jesus wouldn't have ever got sick because he was the son of God. But, you know, he identified with us in everything. So I guess he probably did get sick. I guess he did get a cold or, you know, was under the weather sometimes and understood what it was like to be sick or to feel sick. Although we don't read that. This is only my you know, my thoughts. But I think he understood and identified with us in everything that we do. But still, he didn't take his eyes off the Father. Whatever the circumstances, he kept walking. He kept going. He kept to the plan. Now, I don't know about you, but I really want to be strong and powerful in my life. Who wants to be strong and powerful in their lives? Yeah? Okay. Who always feels strong and powerful? Yeah. Who never messes up? Gets it wrong. All right, okay. <laughs> You'll be in trouble later. <laughs> I saw that hand. All right. Absolutely. You see, stuff happens. I mean, it just happens. And we get thrown off track sometimes. My steadfastness is apt to wobble at different times. When t- things are tough, I feel like a jelly. <laughs> you know, I'm walking along oh, like this. I was, I was thinking about that. Do you, do you know, um, who's, who's seen the film, um, Monsters Inc? You, you know that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that film. But you know, in the film Monsters Inc, in case you haven't seen it, there are these kind of monsters. Now actually, they're not really bad monsters. But, um, but if you were a sort of child asleep in bed and one of these things pops out of your cupboard, you'd think it was a bad monster. Because they kind of get energy, from what I remember, by kind of the screaming that people do when they appear. So they kind of have this sort of power house thing and when people scream the little meters go up and the energy levels and everything go up so their whole aim is to leap out of cupboards at night and spoil and spoil um and frighten poor little kids in their beds now i don't know if any of you ever had that with your children where they kind of thought there were monsters in the cupboard or sort of under the bed um i have a confession here when i first left home and went off to nursing to do nursing was living in the nursing home i used to (laughs) check under the bed in the cupboard before i went to bed at night I'm really not sure what I thought I was going to find there. <laughs> but, you know, for children, it's, it's often they're scared of, you know, what might be in that dark corner or in that cupboard. And so, you know, mum and dad say to them, you know, there's, there's no such thing as monsters. There are no monsters. There are no monsters under your bed. You're fine. You know, you'll be okay. Nothing's going to jump out and get you. But actually, do you know what? In the world, there are things that to us feel like monsters, so, you know, we have those conversations with God, don't we? God, and I really want to keep my eyes on you. I know you love me. I know you're good. But see, there's that great big scary monster over there with a scary face and big teeth. And he's called bankruptcy. He's called sickness. He's called fear of failure. And see, God, I know you said to me that you'll, you'll direct my paths and you'll keep me safe. But, you know, there's that big hole that's opening up in front of me. And it's dark and it's got slippery sides and it's called grief and it's called loneliness. And you can think of all the other kind of things that we would see as those big scary monsters or as those holes in the path in front of us. And sometimes we are just scared that we're going to get swallowed up by something. Sometimes big and difficult stuff gets in the way and it is hard to keep our eyes on him. We aren't good at looking at two things at the same time. And we can get discouraged 
as well when we're in that place, not only because of the circumstances, but because we start to feel guilty that we're struggling. We hear such fantastic stories, such fantastic testimonies, don't we, of healing and of um, just one we heard this morning. It's amazing and it causes our faith to rise and that's right and that's great. But when we're going through something very difficult, you know, it can feel like, what's wrong with me? You know, everybody else is just doing great and I'm really struggling to keep my eyes on him. I'm really struggling to just keep going. When I was um, 17, um, I started to struggle with depression. And I'd only been a Christian for a couple of years. But I dropped out of school at the end of the lower six because I couldn't cope with what was happening at home and what I was feeling. And at that time, I didn't really know that I was, I was beginning to suffer with depression because I didn't really know very much about it. And I guess over the next seven years, depression was a constant thing in my life. And it was up and down. And people that knew me really wouldn't have known. I think the only person really that knew um, by the time we were married was Stuart. Because I felt I was a Christian. I shouldn't be depressed. You know, God was there. He was looking after me. He was amazing. Why, why was I depressed? There must be something wrong with me. And I felt guilty. And in those days, again, you know, people didn't go to the doctor as much with depression. There was a bit more of a stigma attached to it. So that didn't help. But I basically suffered with that for years, so much so that I almost didn't get through all my nursing training because I had so much time off sick. I would wake up in the morning and think, I can't get out of bed. And so I would ring up work and I would say, I've got a migraine. I first learned to do that when I was at school, when things were difficult at home and I couldn't cope. I can't go to school. I've got, I've got a migraine. Or I would say, you know, I've got a stomach upset or whatever it was. And that got worse as the years went on. So I got through my first bit of nursing training, but it kind of came to a head for me when um, I was in the middle of my midwifery training and one of the tutors um, asked to see me. And actually she was a Christian and um, she said to me, you know, you take so much time off sick. And she said, we looked at your record before you came here of how much time you had off sick when you did your adrenal training. And she said, we nearly didn't take you because of the amount of time you had off sick. And she said, and now she said, you'll be lucky if you actually finish this because you've had so much time off sick. I felt such shame and guilt because of that. And because no one recognized that actually I was depressed. And I was struggling. And I had a good, you know, I had a lovely husband and a good marriage. And it's like, I must be this terrible person because I'm so miserable all the time. And yet everything is, you know, is there for me. And I was angry with myself. And I thought God must be as disgusted at me as I was with myself. And I would sometimes pick up the Bible. You know, when you're in a really bad place, reading the Bible just makes you feel worse. And sometimes we try to encourage people and say, yeah, well, it says in the Bible. But you know what? When you're feeling like that, that's the last thing you want to read because it just reminds you how far away from that place of trust that you are. But I used to sometimes kind of get my Bible and sort of try and read something and try and to encourage myself. And I I remember one of the verses that, you know, we all read in difficult times. He is Isaiah 40, 29 to 31. And it says he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. But do you know what? 
I read that and I thought, it's a very odd way of putting it. Because if I was writing that verse, I'd say this. I'd say, they will walk and not faint. They will run and not grow weary. And then they'll soar on wings like eagles. So I'm kind of thinking, well, why is it that way round? Well, maybe this is just my kind of idea. Obviously, people would think different things. But, do you know, I think that in the Christian life, we are meant to soar. We, and we can soar. We're made to be able to soar. We're made to be able to be out there, you know, knowing who we are, having all the authority that he gives us, changing the world, seeing God, having an intimate relationship with him. All that kind of whole idea, whatever you put in that space of soaring on wings like eagles, you know, that is possible for us. That is the place that we can be. But sometimes, because stuff happens, well, we can only run. You know, so we're running along. Maybe life's particularly busy. Maybe there's just an awful lot you've got to do. So soaring sounds like a great deal of fun, but actually at the moment I've just got to keep running and trust him that I don't get weary. And then right at the end of that, you know, there are some times when all we can do is put one foot in front of the other and hope we don't faint. But you see, we look at those things and we think... There's something wrong with me because I'm not soaring like an eagle. I'm just plodding along, getting one foot in front of the other and thinking, am I going to get to the end of the week? I've gone off my notes. Just one minute. Okay. I think the most challenging and the bravest place that we find ourselves is the times when we can only just put one foot in front of the other and keep going. Because when I'm soaring, it's not difficult. It's really not difficult. I'm loving worship. I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm out there. It's great. And when I'm running, well, that's okay. It's a bit of a slog for a while. But the, the times when all I can do is put one foot in front of the other, do you know, that's the time when I'll be bravest. And it's also the time when God comes through the most for me. Those of you who have children, when are you most proud of your children? Is it when they're running around, having fun, getting things right? Or are you most proud of your children when they're really struggling with something and they don't give up? And they persevere and they persevere and they persevere and then one day they get it and you're like, yes. But you're pride in them while they keep going. And if any of you have maybe had children that are sick or have gone through difficulties, you know, or have challenges in their lives, and you watch them persevering in that, how proud are you of your child for doing that? And you see, I think that when we're in that place where we're putting one foot in front of the other, God is so proud of us that we just keep going. That we just put in one foot in the other, that we're determined to keep walking, however difficult it is. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength, it says in Isaiah 40, 29. And then Psalm 27, 13 to 14 says this, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. See, we were saved by grace and we continue by grace. It's still there when we struggle 
It's still there when we mess up. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, we can struggle with all sorts of things like depression or anything else. But sometimes it's not about the circumstances, it's about us. We make mistakes, we mess up, we do stupid things, we give in to temptation. That thing over there looks much more fun than what's over here. But the grace is still there for us, even when we mess up. Because you know what? Saints are just sinners who fall down and get up again and then keep walking. There was um, a guy called um, Bob Harrington. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. But he was known as the pastor of Bourbon Street in the U.S. And um, he had a, a really amazing ministry. Um, he got so well known that he was on talk shows and on Oprah and, you know, was kind of really well known. But he says this. He says, um, fame, fortune and frolic got me off the track. I had been on all the major talk shows such as Donahue and Oprah, as well as having my own syndicated TV show across the country. Money got to be no object as the dollars flowed in and the making of money began to be my focus. I began listening to the young women who bragged on how good I was and looked and became addicted to their ego boosts. I finally left preaching altogether and went strictly into very successful years as a motivational speaker, finally leaving God completely out of my life. I was miserable, living on fun and thrills, little happiness, no joy. See, He was in that place for 19 years. He left his wife. He left his family. And like the prodigal son, he went away and tried to enjoy the kind of pleasures of life. But it didn't didn't work. And then one day, someone rang him up and said, Bob, when are you coming home? And he, he went home. And God actually has used him. He's an old man now, but God has used him since in the ministry. So he had 19 years of mess up, but he could still come home. The grace was still there, and he is walking with God now. You can never mess up so much that the grace isn't there for you to come back to him and to carry on walking. What are the keys to walking steadfastly and so being strengthened and becoming more powerful? Actually, I should probably, before I do that, I should just probably tell you the end of the story about my depression or I'll send you all away. (laughs) Is she still in that place? Um, I mean, God is very good. So um, after we'd been married for um, uh, a couple of years, um, and as I say, the, 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 the midwifery tutor had spoken to me and I was feeling so desperate. A lady called Jean Darnell, many of you might have heard of Jean, she was doing a conference um, in Swanley, and um, I went along to it. can't remember anything about it, to be honest, what what she was was talking about. But what I do remember was, at the end, she um, said, if you're you're, um, sick or you've you've got something you you need sort of deliverance from, come up and um, I'll pray for you. So people were getting prayed for, and I mean, I was in the line. I just decided I was so desperate, I'd do anything, really. Um, and I, I kind of went up. Um, I wasn't really very charismatic at that point, I ought to say. So I did certainly didn't have much faith for it, but I was just very desperate. So um, I went up and I was standing in the line and I realized as people were getting up to her, she was saying, you know, what do you want me to pray for? And they'd say, oh, I've got a 
broken leg or whatever it was, and she would she would pray for them. So it got to me, and I was fully expecting her to say, so what do you want prayer for? And she didn't, she, which I think would have been quite difficult, actually, for me to have said. And um, I stood there, and she just looked at me, and then she laid her hands on me, and she started to pray for me. And when she finished, remember, she knew nothing about what I was doing there. And I wasn't wearing sackcloth and ashes or anything, so you know, she wasn't going to get from my demeanor. Um, as as um, she finished, she looked at me and she said, and she again, I'd heard what she was praying for the people, so she hadn't said this. She said, God has healed you. She said, but you are going to have to walk in it. I'm like, right. <laughs> so I go home and... You know, I'm okay for a few days. And then Sunday comes around. And Sunday was always that difficult day when I quite often wouldn't get out of bed. Stuart will be able to tell you that was true. So I woke up and it was that feeling of the black cloud, you know, oh, I'm, I'm not going to go to church. I can't go to church. And Stuart came in and said, you know, are you getting up going to church? And I'm like, no, no, I can't. I'm not going to church. And I just rolled over in the bed like I normally would do. And I mean, I think he was a bit, didn't know what to do with me either. So he kind of potted off and and I'm laying there, and you know, sometimes you lay there, and I was kind of expecting at this point to just be, you know, completely sort of black and just trying not to think, because that was what you try and do when your head's full of black thoughts. Just, I won't think, I'll just, you know, shut it all out. But you know what, I couldn't do it. I was laying there thinking, I'm not really feeling that bad. And then I'm thinking, but I should be. So I'm trying hard to conjure up those feelings of feeling that bad and not going to church. And I couldn't. And then her, her words came back into my head. God has healed you, but you are going to have to walk in it. And I thought, well, I have a choice. I can stay here and stay in the place that I was, or I can get up and I can go to church. And I got up and I went to church. And I never suffered from depression again. Because God will strengthen you if you let him. I'm not trivializing or dismissing whatever you're in, whether it's depression or anything else. I had seven years of depression. And I guess God could have healed me at any time. But he chose to heal me through Jean Donnell seven years later. Whatever we're going through, he walks with us. So, quickly, some keys. Now, these are not all of them. There are loads of things you can talk about. I mean, I could talk about being steadfast, walking steadfastly for, for hours. There's loads of stuff in the Bible. So, if you want to know more about that and promises of God, go look at, go do some word searches. Always good. But here's some of them. Firstly, it's about learning that he is good all the time. And I'm using that word on purpose. Because we get told, you know, God is good all the time. And that is true. But I have to learn that for myself. Because otherwise it's just head knowledge. And it doesn't help me when I'm walking. I have to know, believe and learn that God is good all the time, whatever the circumstances. That he's powerful. That he is love. We sang that. That he is grace. That he is strength. That he is faithful. That he is steadfast. In other words, it's really all about him, not about me. See, I might wobble, but God never wobbles. God is always steadfast. 
Daniel says, he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which will not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. That should be the strength that we hold on to, not ours, but his. Secondly, and we do say a lot around here, and I think David Webster's book will come out fairly soon on the same subject. We need to know who we are and why we're here and where we're going. It was because Jesus knew who he was and where he was going that he was able to stick to the plan. I need to know that I'm a son or daughter of the king and I need to know that God has a plan and a purpose for my life. And if you've lost a sense of the plan and purpose for your life, then you need to go back to him and ask him to help you find that again. Commitment. Do you know what? Not always a popular word today. It's a bit like marriage vows, isn't it? You know, we make a commitment when we when we get married. And um, there was a, a book that I, I read years ago by um, Eugene Peterson, and I just loved the title because it was called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And actually, that's part of what our Christian life is. It's making that commitment and being determined that we're going to have that long obedience in the same direction, that we're going to love him, that we're going to follow him, that we're going to keep going no matter what. When we make a commitment, it helps us to stick to it in hard times. If we don't do that, then when hard times come along, it can be easy to kind of fall off the track a bit. Relationship. Brother Lawrence, in the practice and presence of God, says this. He says, let us occupy ourselves entirely in knowing God. The more we know him, the more we will desire to know him. As love increases with knowledge, the more we know God, the more we will truly love him. We will learn to love him equally in times of distress or in times of great joy. And that's the thing, see. When we know someone, then we know that they're for us always. We know that they're for us whether it's good or whether it's bad. We know they want to spend time with us, whether we're in a good mood or a bad mood. God is never in a bad mood. I get in a bad mood. Do you know what? God still wants to spend time with me if I'm in a good or a bad mood. So as we learn more about him and as we grow in our relationship with him, as we spend time with him, as we think about him, as we meditate on the things that he said... It helps us to keep walking when things are difficult. Promises. Do you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, as he walked to the cross, as he was on that last journey to Jerusalem, he said this, he said to his disciples, all of you will forsake me, but my father is with me. He will not leave me alone. And holding on to those promises that he is always with us, that he will never forsake us. Whatever we're going through, he's going to be there. He'll be with us in good times and he'll be with us in bad times. He'll cheer with us when things are going well and he'll cry with us when things are not going so well. There's lots of promises in the Bible you can hold on to. There's a second one. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And then he says in uh, chapter, two, sorry, chapter 1, verses two, 2 to 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So those 
really difficult times that we go through, they're the very times that make us more steadfast, that we learn that when we can lean on him, we can hold on to him in those difficult times, then actually we are strengthened. And as we are strengthened, then we can't, we're more powerful. And as we're more powerful, we, we find it easier to walk and to trust in him. So he promises that he'll be with us always. And he promises that when we go through trials, they'll strengthen us if we continue to trust in him. And then there's the promise of the crown of life when we get to the end of this race. I'm nearly there. Truth. Declaring these truths and others over ourselves. You know, when when you speak truth to yourself, you change something in you. It's like a lot of the time with us, it's a battle for the mind, isn't it? That, you know, we know that God is good. We know that he loves us. But this is battle all the time going on in our mind when circumstances are difficult. And when we speak truth over to ourselves, it changes something in us. The psalmist says this. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. What's he doing? He's speaking to his soul. He's saying, hope in God, this is a season, this will pass, and I will praise him again. We need to declare those things over ourselves. Do you know, it's also a very good way of dealing with the lies of the enemy, because apart from the battle of the mind that goes on when things are tough, you know, the enemy just so likes to get those lies in there, doesn't he? See, I knew you couldn't do that. I knew you are going to fail. You're never going to get out of this pit. You're never going to stop being depressed. You're never going to find another job. You're never going to make this relationship work. Those are the lies of the enemy. Why are you cast down, O my soul? What lies are you telling me, enemy? And why are you causing turmoil in me? I hope in God, for I know that I will again praise him. My salvation. We need to declare truth to the enemy as well. Jesus did that in the, in the wilderness. It was very effective. So we're coming to the end. We become powerful people who see enemies defeated, whether they're monsters or fear, sickness, persecution. And we become powerful people when we understand that whether we're soaring or whether we're just putting one foot in front of another, God is with us. And our strength comes from him. Jotham became powerful because he walked steadfastly before God. Donna became powerful because she walked steadfastly before God. Mike became powerful because he walked steadfastly before God. Andrew became powerful because he walked steadfastly before God. Liz became powerful because she walked steadfastly before God. It's there for all of us. If you're struggling with anything this morning, then there's going to be a ministry team and we'd love you to come out and get prayed for. And if you're soaring, just keep going. Amen.